Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. The radio and TV version of the show air in over 12 states. This includes both coasts and Silicon Valley. The show also airs in the UK, Caribbean, and Australia. For full show times, plus past episodes of the TV and radio show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. We just launched a free online community to connect past guests, listeners, and others. This community will allow you to network, chat on Slack, or get help with anything else, and a lot more. If you're interested in joining the community, buying some merch, sponsoring the show, or signing up for the newsletter, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com. The show is a proud media partner for the 11th Annual Media Excellence Awards, which are produced by Access Entertainment in Los Angeles, California. The Media Excellence Awards are recognized as the most influential awards show honoring innovation and leadership in all things mobile entertainment, lifestyle, and technology. For more information on how to submit to these awards, please visit MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Michael Lee. He's the founder and CEO at the Data Incubator. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you back on the show. You you did the show, oh, what, a year and a half or so ago, maybe maybe longer? Yeah. Um, and I thought, basically, let's have you back on the show, not only because I think what you guys are doing is actually really cool and innovative. You guys have added a lot more stuff. You've grown. And I also think that um, the courses and the stuff you guys offer at the Data Incubator are so much more kind of in the public eye lately, kind of. And and so I, I wanted to kind of bring people's attention back to what you guys are doing. So, you know, thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I think there's been a greater role for technology, whether that be big data, AI, or blockchain, entering the public sphere and the public discourse. And so as a consequence, you're getting more and more people talking about these topics, which is great for us. Sure. Uh, We love it when people are becoming more technically literate and taking our courses. But uh, also, I think better for society. I think that these are very important uh, issues and topics that are coming up. And the more we discuss them, I think the better informed and the better decisions we'll make as a society. Sure. No, I 100% agree, uh, agree with you. But maybe before we kind of dive a bit deeper into what you guys are doing at the, the Data Incubator, let's get to know you a little bit better and cover where you grew up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Okay. Um, and uh, moved east sort of for college. So okay. Um, went to Princeton for my undergrad. What, what doing, did you take there? Uh, computer science. Okay. And what, what was, was there like a defining moment in your childhood or what got you interested in kind of taking computer science? Yeah. So, you know, as a kid on the West Coast grew up in the 90s, I think the tech boom probably had this immeasurable impact. Okay. Uh, you know, at some point in middle school, we all thought that we're going to go and become millionaires by the time we were 20. Uh, and then, of <laughs> sure. course, the uh, tech, the first tech bubble uh, pops, right, in yep. 2000. And uh, those dreams have to be put on hold. But no, I mean, I think I understood from an early age the power of computing and its uh, ability to change the world. So that was something that I've always been very excited about. No, I, um, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. But but keep going. So. 
Yeah, so you know, so I went to Princeton in computer science. Okay. Uh, really interested in uh, how those things kind of uh, how computers can affect our world, but then also really saw the, uh, at least at, at Princeton this uh, the importance of, kind of mathematics and statistics, how that uh, can play a very important part of our society. Remember, this is the early aughts, so there's a uh, huge interest now in sort of quants and what you can do with uh, computers and statistics on Wall Street. So I was very interested in kind of how you combine those two things, like computation and science. Okay. Uh, so I did uh, a master's in statistics at Cambridge. Wow. Um, I was on a Marshall. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be sort of funded by a Marshall um, from the UK government there. I wow. uh, spent two years there, came back to Princeton, uh, ultimately did my PhD uh, in applied math. Uh, wow. Again, trying to understand how mathematics um, and computation kind of uh, can be useful, not just sort of theoretical stuff, but really applied to uh, uh, the real world. Um, and then, you know, about that time, I think, uh, did a little bit of work in Wall Street. So the usual okay. suspects, right, like your J.P. Morgans, your uh, D.E. Shaw's, um, uh, Bloomberg's, those kind of quanti places. Uh, and then moved over really to data science. Um, I was a data scientist in residence at Andreessen Horowitz. Okay, um, actually, first time they had that position. And then um, moved over to Foursquare, where I ultimately kind of headed up data science monetization, trying to really help the company make uh, money from the you know, fixed number of eyeballs uh, that show up to our properties every um, every month. And sure. You know, through all that, I think I had a good deal of experience um, understanding, well, this is kind of both, this is how you can apply data uh, in the real world to accomplish an organization's goals, right, okay. and really sort of drive the bottom line. Um, and I knew that there were more and more companies that were looking for this uh, and looking to embrace data. And so that's why I went and moved over, um, started my own company, uh, did an incubator where I'm the founder and, and CEO, and sure. really kind of focusing on this is how we, uh, this is how companies need to really think about talent in this space. Sure. No, I, I think that's, that's great. And you kind of quickly just covered how, like why you decided to kind of do it. But was there kind of like a defining moment where, you were like, you know what, I I just need to like set up this kind of the data incubator and, and like why did you decide to found it instead of, you know, trying to maybe go work somewhere else or, or do something, you know, kind of different? Because I think it's super important, but I'm always kind of curious if there was like a defining moment that made you just say like, you know what, I just need to go for this. Yeah. Look, I think I was able to see a problem um, in – uh, the hiring and training market as a person who was on both sides of the interviewing table, right? Okay. So as a PhD leading academia, okay. I could see some of the shortcomings. And then as a uh, hiring manager trying to hire talent, I could sort of see some of the problems from the other perspective. And sort of having completed that full cycle, I started re realizing, look, there's uh, a lot of things that we can do to help smooth this process out. And that's why I started the data incubator. And the first thing we did was uh, we had this fellowship program 
where every quarter we bring in the top uh, 2% of the 2,000 plus applicants we get. So, you know, it's wow. a very, very selective program. Okay. Um, these are for all folks who have uh, PhDs, uh, master's degrees from places like uh, Harvard, MIT, Caltech, wow. uh, Berkeley, Stanford, right? The sort of Princeton, so usual top tier institutions. Sure. Uh, we work with them. We train them up. Um, the program is free for the fellows who get in. And okay. then we work with hiring companies who are looking to uh, hire. And the way we monetize is that we get paid a recruiting fee on the back end. Interesting. Okay. So what types of stuff do you guys teach people during the fellowship? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the way we thought about the fellowship is that a lot of it comes from the selection, right? So okay. we are choosing the people who have 90% of the skills that are necessary okay. to being a data scientist. Uh, and we're not really there to do the kind of fundamental heavy lifting around statistics and uh, probability and sort of basic programming, right? Uh, the people who are coming in already have that. Okay. But what we see is that there's a s systematic mismatch between the kinds of skills and technologies that people from academia know and are familiar with and the kinds of skills and technologies that industry is demanding. So what we're trying to do is fill in that last 10%. That will get you from, hey, you know all the basics and the fundamentals, the hard stuff to learn. Yeah. Here's what you need to do in order to actually get the job. Interesting. So it's really focused around, well, um, let's say on the programming languages side, academics tend to be on very, very old legacy technology stacks. Interesting. Um, and whether that be sort of Fortran for uh, physicists or this funny language called IDL, which is only used by the astronomy community, Interesting. Uh, they tend to sort of have uh, a very, uh, a more dated approach technology. And what we're saying is, look, this is just not where the industry is anymore. And what we want to do is get you caught up on some of the latest uh, tooling. So whether that be uh, in Python or R, uh, whether they're talking about MapReduce or Spark, um, getting people using the kind of tools that they're going to be using in industry, explaining to them the new concepts and the new paradigms, how to do that, uh, and making them so much more productive. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of the feedback we're getting from our fellows is that they feel like they used to be running with shackles on, right. and now we've taken those off. Interesting. Uh, Sure. And then obviously, like when you guys are looking to get them kind of jobs, they though the companies that you guys have worked with in the past basically understand the skill set that they're getting, right? Like, so it's kind of a win win from the employee and the employer side and for you guys, absolutely. obviously, but yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a lot of what we were trying to do, right? Uh, you know, one of the pieces I have in uh, I think it was Fast Company. So I do a lot of sort of uh, writing. Sure. One of the pieces I wrote in Fast Company uh, was about how companies, and particularly the HR departments of companies, are really focused on these buzzwords. Okay. So they're looking for a key set, set of things that people claim they know on their resumes uh, for hiring. But that's not a particularly effective. What you really need to know is whether or not people know what the ideas, the core concepts. Uh, because if they know those kind of core ideas, then it's relatively easy for them to learn the latest technology um, right. or, you know, they may already know the latest technology, but they used a, uh, a synonym for that technology as opposed to the one that buzzword that, you know, right. and so it's very easy 
for employers to miss good talent sure. as they're skimming through resumes because they don't have that kind of expertise. And it's very easy for them to choose the wrong kind of talent because they oftentimes choose people who claim they know someone uh, something because they once looked at it in an afternoon for fun. But uh, when you really drill down on them, they don't actually kind of know these ideas in depth. Sure. So that's a lot of what we're focusing on in our selection process. And then in the training process, making sure people are completely caught up with all these different technologies so that when they uh, go and try to get a job, they now have a good uh, uh, tool set that they can um, talk about and address. Sure. No, that makes sense. So, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of companies that would, would come to, you know, the data incubator is because maybe they're hiring a data scientist for the first time, or maybe they have some employees that are looking to kind of get trained. But I'm curious though, is part part of the thing that I think would, would make me struggle is hiring a data scientist is, yeah, sure, I, I don't understand, like obviously I'm not a data scientist, um, so it would be really hard for me to actually hire somebody that know that I could verify you know, without somebody like you guys to say like, yes, they really are a true data scientist because your point a second ago about like, just cause I, you know, read about it online or, you know, goofed in, in it for an afternoon doesn't really mean I'm a data scientist, right? And so I think bridging that gap is kind of really great that you guys are kind of doing that. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of the reason that people come to us, right? Okay. So. Uh, half of it is um, half of our business are comes from sort of established data science teams who um, are basically looking to augment their uh, their hiring pipeline. So they yep. maybe already have five, ten folks, and they just need that eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth person. Um, and then the other half of it are sort of smaller companies or even larger companies that are trying to hi- make that first hire, and they take comfort from the fact that very established teams. Um, are working with us already, right, uh, and are hiring from us. Sure. So how do you work with companies if they're looking to train some of their employees? Yeah, so basically what happened was a uh, maybe two years ago now, companies would come to us and say, great, you know, we hire two, three, four folks from your quarter. Uh, these are sort of the Fortune 500 our clients that we have, but that's not enough. What we really need, right, what the company's telling us is to take the hundreds or thousands of actuaries and statisticians uh, and folks like this with this kind of background, um, I call them proto-data scientists, and get those proto-data scientists trained up to become full-fledged data scientists. So what we did was we took our curriculum. So we have an eight-week fellowship. Each week is a module. Okay. Uh, we broke up all the, the, the curriculum into these individual modules, uh, and we deliver those on-site, um, usually in person, but we have the capability of doing live. Okay. Uh, sorry, uh, online. And, uh, but it's always live training and doing it um, for companies in kind of bite-sized chunks. Okay. Uh, and we work with companies to figure out what their learning path is, so this is where you're starting. This is where you go. Here are the classes that um, don't make you retake material that you already have because you already have the prerequisites, but get you to the place where you need to go because the world is a changing place and you need to be able to make sure your talent is able to adapt to that 
changing business environments. Interesting. So that's a lot of what we, uh, we've been doing. Uh, we've expanded our training module, so we're now probably up to about 20 of them now. Interesting. Uh, and doing a lot of training with corporate customers, um, a lot obviously in banking, a lot in healthcare, uh, and actually a reasonable amount in the government now. And so the DC area. Okay, interesting. So you, you kind of touched on it, I think, but correct me if I'm wrong. What are, like if I'm an employee and my um, employer's willing to train me, do, do I need to have certain skills um, to actually get you guys' help? Or, or how does that kind of work? Yeah, so one of the things uh, we did as we were expanding the curriculum is we took this sort of very, very advanced curriculum that we had that was more focused on fellowship, right? So people who are already uh, pretty skilled. And we added a bunch of prerequisite classes to it. Okay. Um, so these kind of foundational courses, we found are actually some of the things that the corporate clients are actually really most in need of training on. Uh, okay. And it's things like, you know, the target audience might be an analyst, right? Somebody who is used to playing with data, but okay. they're doing it in Excel. They're doing sort of fairly simplistic analyses. Right. And they know that their tool and their capabilities are limited, and they want to break beyond that. Okay, so we sort of help them uh, start doing things automatically, uh, automating those processes, uh, start applying techniques that are more statistically sound, that are based on machine learning and AI, and really kind of getting them up to a more advanced level where now they're able to take some of the most more advanced courses that we have in our fellowship. You know, the very high end, it might be things like Spark or uh, machine, uh, uh, sorry, Spark or AI or deep learning, okay. right? Some of these very uh, kind of popular, perhaps sexy topics now uh, that uh, people like to talk about. But, um, you know, you really need to have a pretty strong background to get to those topics. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I, I just thought that it made sense to kind of clarify that because I think there's a lot of people that would be like, I would love to be a data scientist, but it, it's not like you just start there, right? Like you need to at least understand some kind of things that are that may not be necessarily directly related to, you know, just data itself, right? Never mind kind of from the programming side of it. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that there's you know, when we talk with either potential students or sort of learning and development groups, there's a huge emphasis on what's sexy, what's hot right sure. now. Right? Yeah. So everyone wants to learn about, let's say, deep learning, and they want to build complex neural nets. But if you can't write a for loop to save your life, you're not going to get there. Sure. So, you know, a lot of our kind of conversations with um, advanced, these kind of learning development groups or sort of data uh, groups, groups that want to become data scientists, a lot of that is about sort of uh, customer expectation management, like explain to them that, no, you need to eat your vegetables before you can have desserts. Sure. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that's just part of sure. part and parcel of, you know, uh, good customer expectation management uh, and good customer relationship building. Sure. So you guys also offer a number of courses online Let's maybe walk through them a little bit of like what you guys kind of cover in, in each one of them. 
Sure. Yeah, and just to give your uh, listeners a bit of a overview. Sure. Um, I think, you know, we started this maybe a year and a half ago because we okay. realized that, look, we have this fellowship, which is for sort of super advanced people that are trying to make that transition into data science careers. We have a um, the, uh, sort of corporate training program, which is for entire groups within companies that are looking to scale themselves up or sort of large corporations. But what happens if you're just an individual in a large corporation or you're uh, a data science group, but you're just two or three people um, or you're, you know, you're a working professional. You don't have eight weeks to take off to just go and do the fellowship. Right. Right. Um, what can you do? So we started offering these online courses. The idea is that they are kind of nights, nighttime courses for you to, uh, that you can take while working. Okay. Um, the material is spread out. Uh, so, you know, a typical module that we may do in one week in sort of a corporate training or a fellowship type mode where it's, you know, full day, eight weeks, 40 hours, uh, that gets spread out over four weeks to make okay. it more uh, bite-sized and manageable. Sure. No, I, I, I think that's that's awesome, man. I, I, I think that's really great. So let's maybe walk through some of the courses you guys kind of offer. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, the kind of two most popular okay. are our data science foundations course. Okay. Um, and that's really kind of the first entree into um, data science. Uh, it's, we view it very much as sort of a prerequisite for our fellowship. In fact, a lot of the people who are looking to apply for the fellowship, but think that that might be a little too advanced for them. They actually end up taking the data science foundations course first as kind of a prerequisite okay. to, um, that then kind of flows naturally into the fellowship. Uh, so that's kind of what that's about. Um, and it's really uh, the nuts and bolts of blocking and tackling around data science. It's how do you handle unstructured data? How do you handle, well, even just structured data, how do you do this in a programmatic way? How do you use tools like Python and Pandas and, uh, and scikit-learn to start doing that? It starts delving into the basics of machine learning so people get kind of get uh, their foot wet there um, and dip a toe in. And it kind of builds that core foundational knowledge, which is then needed to go into all sorts of other courses. Right. Uh, the other really popular course that people follow up with um, oftentimes, you know, right after uh, the sort of foundations course is um, the, uh, the applied machine learning course. So the okay. idea there is really to do um, wh what we, uh, it's the same length. They're both of these are eight weeks uh, at night, two days a week. Um, but it's really a, focusing in on, okay, now that you've mastered some of these basic programming concepts, mm -hmm. let's start getting you to, into, into learning more about um, how do you apply a kind of machine learning statistics uh, in machine intelligence layer? How do you do uh, machine learning and do it correctly so that you're learning the right kinds of signals and getting the right kind of value out of data as opposed to overfitting or underfitting or just sort of generally building very not powerful models, right? very weak models. Okay. And that's kind of a lot of what we do. We go through probably a dozen different types of machine learning models you can do. Um, we really teach you a lot of about how do you set up these training pipelines correctly and very much focus on that machine intelligence bit. Okay. So um, mm -hmm. for go people ahead. that don't maybe know exactly kind of what machine learning is, 
Maybe do you want to just kind of quickly describe that? Because I think that's super powerful. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, look, machine learning is one of these really uh, powerful techniques that have, I don't want to say they've come out of the academy in the last few years. They haven't. It's been something that uh, has an ongoing topic of research right. um, for decades now. But I think there was sort of some a magical moment that happened, let's say, a decade ago, maybe five to ten years ago, when computational power started becoming power, uh, good enough and data on humans started becoming good enough, uh, uh, plentiful enough, that, that those two kind of bits of magical sauce came together and suddenly people saw the power of machine learning all over the place. Um, so just as a kind of brief overview, uh, I think of machine learning as really talking about that other branch of learning, right? So we humans, we're taught what's called deductive reasoning. The idea that you have lots of facts and you, um, or you have lots of, uh, logical suppositions and you try to put those together in a logical way to draw conclusions. So, the bear, um, uh, let's see, polar bears are white. Uh, there's a polar bear at the zoo. Therefore, that polar bear at the zoo is white. Uh, that kind of deductive reasoning. Interesting. But what we found is that computers actually learn really well inductively. So not applying these kind of abstract logical concepts, but seeing lots of pat- uh, data and then pulling out the patterns that emerge from that. Now, we as humans do this all the time. This is actually almost certainly how young children are learning. They sort of observe patterns, they observe data, and then they pull out the patterns from that, and they kind of uh, uh, learn from that. And this is something that, that's what machine learning is trying to do. It is trying to synthetically recreate that process of inductive learning that we as humans um, naturally do. Uh, but because you're doing it through a computer, you can potentially see a lot more data than a human can ever do. Um, and you can be potentially a lot more accurate or precise than a human could ever uh, be. Interesting. Um, and you see this all the time with, you know, things like the Netflix recommender. I think that's always the canonical example. Sure. That uh, most people would what, would have used, right, or at least seen at some point exactly. in their life. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Any. Yeah. Exactly. Right. If you have a Netflix subscription, you'll notice that they tell you, they give you a recommendation of like ten different yeah. uh, DVDs or uh, streaming uh, shows to watch, and those are different and ta- and individualized for every viewer sure. or every uh, customer. And what they're doing is effectively pulling out the patterns from a lookalike analysis. So they're inductively learning that these are, if we look at the movies you watched and like, and we look at what other people have watched and like, uh, we can see that, that you fit into this kind of bucket, right? You have to have this lookalike group. And these other people who have your taste, they've also seen these four other movies that you, or TV shows that you haven't seen. And they've really liked those. So because you have so many shared uh, movie preferences, uh, we think that, that those last few movies that this uh, group has seen, um, but that could be really useful for you. And that's kind of what, you know, it's just one example, right, of something that would be, uh, that you can use. Uh, another example would be looking at what products, services people buy. Um, and when you see Amazon, uh, on Amazon, right, a lot of people say, hey, 
or a lot of uh, a lot of times you want actually buy a product, you'll see them say like, "Hey, people who bought this also bought, you know, B, right? Sure. People who bought A also bought B, and that is based on uh, that kind of lookalike analysis and machine learning and learning those patterns of behavior inductively that people um, have that would be very hard for a single human to do, right? Uh, no single human knows the Amazon purchase history of every single product. Um, in the company's history, that's impossible. But the algorithms and the computers are able to do that uh, and are able to give you very precise recommendations. I feel as if a human was actually doing, a human who sort of has that kind of domain expertise is there to curate and give you examples. No, I, recommendations. Sure. No, I, I think that's, that's quite fascinating. You guys also offer a course on kind of artificial intelligence and, and TensorFlow what exactly do you teach there? Because I think that to me is kind of very much in kind of the public eye right now. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that there's been a huge interest in, uh, um, in artificial intelligence. And when people talk about artificial intelligence, at least, um, let's say, within the public discourse sure. uh, or within sort of like an industrial, uh, within an industry context, typically what they're talking about is deep learning. So this idea that you can use neural nets, uh, which is a specific type of machine learning that's in some sense modeled on how brains work. Um, and that they have, uh, the, the, you can sort of structure them based on these different layers. So in a neural network, you might have three or five or eight or a hundred or a thousand layers. And what has been really exciting uh, I think Google really kind of pioneered the usage of this, but it's building these deep learning networks um, that are way deeper than the previous networks we've ever built, okay. right, where you might have hundreds of thousands of layers, and um, having the kind of computational resources available to you to be able to do that, which is a big, big challenge that we're only beginning to understand how to solve, sure. um, and uh, building these kind of technologies. But the results, have been really amazing. I think the kind of first application of this was for image search. So if you, you know, like uh, image.google.com, if you go there, you'll be able to search for images. Yeah. Uh, what they found was that by applying a neural network, they were able to get something like five or 10 years worth of progress. Wow. Um, uh, with one model, right? Wow. Compared to what they used to do uh, compared to previous techniques. And it was, kind of a big game changer. I think they sort of realized this and they've been applying it to different parts of the business ever since to try to get some of these really big feed ups. Okay. Uh, so there's, you know, immense technical challenges here. It's a very, very complex um, kind of technology uh, that's been made a little bit simpler by tools like TensorFlow and Keras, sure. which uh, are kind of tools that uh, make deep, learn, uh, deep neural network training a little bit easier. Uh, but it's still, there's a lot of mathematics behind it. There's, um, there's a lot of kind of core technical topics. And then ultimately, it takes a while. You need a lot of uh, computational capacity because it's very uh, expensive to uh, to train. Sure. No, that that's quite fascinating to me. Do you maybe want to kind of, TensorFlow's the open source Google one, correct? That's right. Um, do you maybe, and then what was the other one you mentioned? I hadn't heard, I haven't heard of it. Oh, it's Keras. Okay. Um, it's sort of a yeah. So TensorFlow, I think, um, has gotten a lot of love, maybe particularly because it is Google's 
sure. uh, the tool that Google uses internally, and they've uh, open sourced it. Okay. Uh, so it's probably gotten the most public recognition. Sure. Keras is the one that um, sort of built on top of that, and the idea is that uh, there are lots of operations in TensorFlow you do over and over again, okay. uh, but it's a lot of lines of TensorFlow code. So okay. Keras kind of abstracts some of that and makes it a little bit easier for you to um, uh, write the code. But it sits on top of or can sit on top of TensorFlow. Interesting. Okay, very cool. Yeah, no, um, that's always quite fascinating to me. So, um, you guys also do kind of a Bitcoin blockchain um, course. What do you guys kind of cover in that? Because I think that's another kind of hot topic that I think is kind of in the public eye as well lately. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that's really interesting about Bitcoin and blockchain is really that it's not built on any fundamentally difficult um, topics, right? It's sure. the core technologies to build this have been around since almost the dawn of computing. But it's really putting together these little blocks correctly and understanding, you know, the way I like to talk about it is that it's one half computer science and one half sociology. Okay, uh, interesting. And it's really understanding how people use these kind of cryptographic thing, these cryptographic tools, if you will, things like hash functions, uh, and then leverage connecting that and economic incentives. Uh, to sort of say like, well, at certain points in time, people have certain pieces of information. They're going to be incentivized to act in certain ways. And because they do, that incentive then uh, gives rise to the behavior that collectively allows the blockchain uh, or Bitcoin to, um, to remain stable and be that store of value. Interesting. So, okay. Yep. So what types of stuff do you guys kind of cover in the course then? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is trying to help people. It kind of comes in two parts, right? Like okay. one is the kind of the core technologies, okay. uh, the core ideas, um, you know, like things like hash functions, um, uh, uh, signatures, what does it mean, um, uh, Merkle trees, those kind of core basic building blocks of, right. um, of blockchains, uh, blockchain technology and Bitcoin specifically. But then understanding how those pieces come to play, how they interact with the incentives of the people within the system and how that gives rise to Bitcoin. I mean, one of the interesting things about Bitcoin is that there isn't actually like a Bitcoin. There isn't a you know, a computer somewhere that holds your coin. Sure. There isn't a, um, you know, an actual thing that you can hold in your hand, um, but you, you know, like you can with, let's say, a gold coin. Um, sure. The notion of coin is a somewhat abstracted notion. It's this idea that there is this, I don't know, virtual ownership that you can have that in the network cannot be destroyed um, and that you can then irrevocably give to someone else and that you can then use and interpret and hence use as a means of storing value. Uh, and it's really about how you, how these things kind of build up to give you this really almost magical, uh, magical behavior on the internet. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's teaching people that I think that this isn't just a hundred percent magic, but, uh, that the building blocks of this are actually not that hard. And so when they, 
if they want to sort of really understand what's going on or sort of ask that, well, why can't you just do X? Um, you'll start to understand what some of those technical constraints are and why um, it is uh, harder to do. And you may, you know, I think there's a lot of interest from this course uh, from the uh, banking sector because they sure. understand, right, financial services, that this is uh, certainly a very viable threat to the existing business model, and that this is something they have to understand as an institution sure. uh, if they're going to be able to meet the challenge. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that because, like, I've always kind of seen, and this is a very oversimplification, but if you just took away kind of paper money and you just had your your like online bank account, like, and you almost say that like, okay, like each dollar is kind of like a Bitcoin. I know that's not the correct ter- like way because sometimes like one Bitcoin is worth $10,000 $10, or something. But like if you just took the money in your bank account and that was kind of, all you had access to, right? And you just paid people, and but it was the same kind of currency globally. It, like, that's a huge deal for them, right? Like, if everybody was just like, I'm going to take all my money out of your bank and I'm not going to use your, like, d- physical currency. And I'm going to just yep. trade this currency that is one-to-one, even though it's not really one-to-one. But... It works the same everywhere on the planet. That's like potentially like a huge thing. I, we're so far away from that, but like, I, I, it totally makes sense why they're so scared of that. Is that kind of, like do you, do you see? Do you understand what I'm trying to get at there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's right. And um, that kind of digital disruption is something that banks uh, are fearing, not just from Bitcoin, but all, even from the technology giants on the other side. There was a. Um, uh, study by one of the top 20 consulting firms, right? It was actually their business name, McKinsey or BCG, sure. uh, talking about uh, digital disruption within financial services. Okay. And one of the things they tra- traced was consumer confidence in the ability of different companies to handle uh, their money. So do you trust, you know, PayPal to handle your money? Do you okay. trust Wells Fargo to handle your money? JP Morgan Chase? Sure. What about Apple? Sure. What about Google, sure. PayPal, as I already mentioned? And what they were seeing is that while you trusted your bank and implicitly other banks that you may not have a relationship with, yeah. uh, technology firms were not that far behind. They were actually sure. very close in terms of consumer confidence. Right. And the fear from the banks is really that it's not very far between when for those two bars to switch and suddenly consumers will trust technology firms more than existing banks, at which point they have nothing, right? I mean, we all know that most of us have a much more pleasant interaction with the kind of large uh, technology companies in terms of, you know, your Apple products or your uh, Gmail or Google search engine. We have a much more positive interaction there than we have with our bank, right? When I use my bank's mobile app, I'm always complaining that their AI, that their sort of UX issues. Um, Every time I have to go into a branch, it's this whole way to process um, to get a potentially very inconsistent answer from uh, branch representatives. And it really is that this kind of the business model around um, the kind of old business model of, hey, our job is just to securely hold your money. That's kind of not going to cut it anymore. People really want to be able to access their money conveniently. They want to be able to use it um, uh, when they want on demand, they want basically their 
they want their bank to behave like an app. And what an app is really good at doing is anticipating your preferences yeah. and making it very easy for you to do what you want to do. And that fundamentally comes down to the judicious use of data and the correct use of data. Sure. So if you think about it, um, the reason Netflix is so good at telling you what to watch next is yep. because uh, Netflix has studied this problem and looked at the data on this and is able to do that. Sure. Even some more mundane things like looking at um, you know, uh, banks and digital departments at companies have this whole name for something called digital uh, uh, digital capture, the idea that, or digital confinement, sorry, the idea that they want you to stay on their digital platform. They want you to be sure. on their website or their app because it costs them a lot less to service you that way than when you show up at a branch or call one of their representatives. And they're constantly seeing the fact that you are unable to do what you want because the consumers want to stay within, uh, at least sort of certainly younger consumers want to make sure that all their transactions are happening digitally. Yeah. Um, and they're, uh, but they find that the banks are not giving them the capability of doing that. And it creates a lot of frustration when they have to leave and enter the physical world. Um, and uh, banks begin to catch up to this. Um, they're looking at this notion of digital confinement, looking at journeys and seeing how that, uh, how the data about con uh, consumer usage can inform them on where people are leaving the digital platform so they can start spotting the reasons why they're leaving the digital platform and either making it smarter or tweaking the UX uh, to make that more clear so that people stay on. But sure. if you think about it, that's something that these kind of digital first companies have been doing that's been the bread and butter, right? Yep. So they, they've just gotten very, very good at this and they've been able to use this data very, very well. And that's uh, giving them a huge competitive advantage in the modern, um, in the modern environment in which companies and people, they're in those interactions between the consumer and the company are often happening across the digital medium, whether it be desktop, notebook, tablet, uh, wearable, and when you have that, you need to be a master at this medium. And it's very hard for these large companies, these large legacy non-digital companies to master that media. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. I was reading kind of an, another article. I know the one you're talking about. There was one that was saying that um, Starbucks is the most successful kind of digital currency kind of globally because they have so many mm. locations globally and like mm. at first i was kind of like no that's kind of stupid but then i was like no that's actually like really correct sure i have to put like my regular currency into their app but like mm -hmm. it works in canada it works in mexico it works in you know north or sorry in the united states it works in europe and, and a handful of other countries in the planet and if you think about like if your bank account or sorry your employer put your paycheck into your starbucks account or your apple account or your google account and you just mm -hmm. tapped your phone to pay for things kind of globally mm -hmm. why do you need a bank right yep because yep. apple pay works in a handful of countries already google pay works in a handful of country uh, uh in a handful of countries and you know starbucks and other like if you just like it's an interesting concept, right? We're we're years out from it at, at the if it ever happens, but it's it got me kind of thinking, right, about the whole space, and I didn't really realize Starbucks is kind of a a digital currency, but it very much is, right? Yeah, look, I think that you're seeing this more and more, um, and the payment space is uh, kind of heating up because of this. 
Um, and it's not just, you know, payments, right? Sure. Uh, they're under attack. Banks are under attack from uh, all sorts of on all sorts of other fronts. So wealth management. Yeah. Uh, right. You have the betterment of wealth fronts. Um, instantly, actually, Betterment hired one of our fellows as their first uh, data scientist, or one of the first data scientists, and he eventually became their um, chief data scientist, or the, uh, their head of data science, uh, which is kind of a, um, a story that we're always very proud of. But that's another way in which banks are being assaulted digitally. Um, I think with payments, obviously, that started with PayPal. It's happening now with Venmo. Um, and I think that there's just the traditional businesses that these uh, banks uh, have occupied, all, each line of that business is being uh, attacked from a different digital competitor. And I think they're now quite worried sure. about what to do. Sure. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, though, you guys run a course on kind of data science for business leaders. How does that tie into the conversation we're just kind of having about you know, pe people in, in these businesses worried about some of this data that other companies are kind of have a pretty good jump start on. Yeah, I think that's exactly, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, what we are seeing is that especially a lot of these legacy companies, you have a layer of management, um, kind of line level management, let's say, as well as executive, man uh, executive leadership, uh, where they're suddenly waking up to the fears of being disrupted, the fear uh, that they're not doing enough of data um, to really be able to be a viable business in the 21st century. And so they're all look, uh, looking at how do I get caught up, not necessarily in a hands-on keyboard kind of way, right? So when I talk mm -hmm. about our machine learning course, when I talk about our data science fellowship or the data science online foundations course that we have, those are all hands-on keyboard, practitioner-geared, like, let's get you to the place where you can become a data scientist. For the manager's course, that's much more, um, which, by the way, we're calling data science for business leaders. That's really focused on people who don't have to necessarily implement these things day in and day out, but who have to understand the concepts sure. and who have to be able to make decisions based on that. Interesting. So a lot of it is explaining to people, hey, here are the trends that are happening in the industry. Here's how you think about um, what a data project is, what goes into a successful data project? How do you uh, justify a data project? How do you think about what the metrics ought to be? Um, what are some sort of telltale signs to help you evaluate for good uh, versus great kind of data projects? Sure. Um, these are all things that you have to understand as a manager. Right. Uh, I think as we've got, gone through, what we've seen is that there's a lot of interest from Man, uh, different managers who sure. want to be champions for data, but sure. they're not sure how to do that. Sure. And they're not sure how to do that within a, specifically within a corporate context. Uh, and so one of the things we do is we help them uh, schedule courses around um, July and August when a lot of companies are starting to, because with, uh, right immediately afterwards, a lot of companies are going to be gearing up to do annual budgeting. And so they right. want to make sure that their key stakeholders understand what the, uh, oh, how important data is so that when the bank set goes, a bank or whatever the large company is, the enterprise goes to set that agenda for the next, um, for the next year, they appropriately incorporate data and understand the value of data in that budgeting process. 
and a lot of it goes with explaining to people who want to be data champions, hey, this is how you might think about becoming uh, really data um, uh, really data savvy. These are the things you might want to do uh, to promote more, a greater culture of data literacy within your company. Uh, thinking about how do you find projects that will give you some immediate success so that you can then go in the next budgeting cycle and use that success to uh, justify more funding and more headcount and more growth uh, to really build out an operation that's sustainable as opposed to kind of a one-off uh, project that becomes a active, ongoing part of the company. Sure. No, I, I, I think that's great. You guys also offer um, a few more courses, and we're kind of coming to the end of the show, but I definitely want to kind of quickly mention each of them just to get kind of people thinking about it. So you guys do one in deep learning. Do you maybe want to give a quick overview on that one as well? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, deep learning uh, is a obviously a major topic right now. I think I was talking a little bit earlier about um, how uh, artificial intelligence um, is often used as a term for deep learning and that deep learning is really about this kind of neural network type of uh, topics that lets people really um, learn about much more complex situations than they've uh, been able to do before. Uh, and are really kind of at the forefront of both academic and kind of industry research on what can be done with uh, uh, machine learning, right? So I think that's one, one, the reason we're offering a class on it. Sure. Um, yeah, we all, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, yeah, no, totally. And then you guys do kind of a, a DevOps course, uh, do you want to maybe cover that quick? Because I think those people, um, to actually find a really good DevOps person, you could probably argue might be the one of the one of, if not the most important person on your team, especially if you're a software startup. Is that fair to say? Yeah, <laughs> very much. It sounds like you um, have fought the battles. Of the yes, uh, very much so. Yes, very much so. Uh, yeah, look, DevOps is incredibly important. And I think the angle that we take on it uh, is there's a lot of people who kind of understand how to do DevOps for um, sort of your standard software system. Yeah. And we cover that. But we also add in what happens when you want to put in machine learning and deep learning into your system? How do you version your models? How do you keep track of them? How do you test for the correctness of that model? Sure. Right? A unit test is great when you know exactly what the behavior should be. But it gets a little different when you have a model uh, that's just supposed to be smart, right? It's not, there's not sure. necessarily an easy to write down correct answer. Um, and then how do you get these models up into production? How do you ensure that production equals development? Um, all these things are incredibly important. And they have a lot to do with sort of, uh, I guess, the, both developer and data scientist productivity and happiness. Sure. Um, and they have a lot to do with sort of the reliability of your ultimate product that you ship. Sure. It's one thing if you have a bad research environment and your uh, data scientists and researchers are sort of, you know, one, the system is down 10% of the time because uh, it wasn't built well. And so a tenth of your research budget is kind of thrown away. Yeah. But it's quite a different thing when 
your product is when your actual live production site is down a tenth of the time because it's not going to be ten percent of your users who go away. It's going to be all of your users who go yeah, away. Yeah, that, that's exactly your point. There is exactly why I would probably argue they're one of, if not the most important. Pe- person on your team because if you're selling a software business or sorry like a subscription SaaS business if your product's not up online and people can't access it you're in deep trouble right yeah so exactly um uh yeah no i that's just because in in my experience i've worked with people that are outstanding in devops and i've worked with people that are not outstanding in devops and you can tell the difference like so fast it's unbelievable yeah, and I think one of the really exciting technologies there uh, is Kubernetes. Uh, and uh, that was also actually a Google technology um, that we use a lot internally, right? We are okay. dog-booting this stuff um, and because we are keeping up our systems using Kubernetes. Um, but then we figured, you know, this is like something that we've got a lot of demand from, uh, from our clients, our corporate training clients, around like how do we productionize. Sure. And so that's why we've been offering it what what is kubernetes just for people that don't know kubernetes is a it's called orchestration so i guess maybe the way to explain this is when you write a web server or you write a uh, a model that does some training uh or yeah that does sorry some model that sort of delivers some um machine learning and machine intelligence uh that's just sort of a little application but there's a lot that has to do with keeping the application up and running, ensuring that app, that application is able to talk to your other applications. Sure. Um, and uh, that level is called orchestration. Um, part of it is like uh, constantly restarting it, so applications aren't perfect. Sometimes they die. Right. When they die, you basically want a machine that just goes and kicks it up again. Yeah. Um, so it restarts, uh, so that you don't have to fire your own engineer to do this, uh, and it's also the, your website isn't down. Sure. So that's a major part of. Uh, uh, orchestration uh, and it's really and it's also sort of part of this trend towards microservices sure so the idea is that instead of building one monolithic app you build break your app up into lots of little microservices that are all work together so that the, each component is easier to update and maintain you sort of separate your concerns nicely and you need something to glue it all together sure. and that's the layer that kubernetes provides interesting and so you guys also offer a course on distributed computing and real-time streaming. They're two separate courses, but I definitely want to kind of just give a quick overview on both of those before we kind of close out the show. Absolutely. So, you know, with distributed computing at Spark, I think that that's not the name of the game with big data, right? It's not the data you can fit on your computer. It's the data that you have to fit on a cluster because that's sure. so big you can't reside on any individual computer. And then that's why how do you process that data when it's spread out over a thousand nodes on your 1,000-node cluster. Uh, and that's kind of what we talk about is the concepts of parallel computing, distributed computing, uh, as well as sort of tools like Spark and MapReduce to help you solve those problems. Very cool. On the real-time streaming side of things, I think that's the other part of big data, right? Yep. It's uh, volume, velocity, um, and variety. And this is the velocity part. People, consumers are becoming increasingly impatient. They want yep. these results immediately. Yep. And so you have to start training and learning about uh, consumer trends and uh, your customers and user trends immediately, put those into production. And that's about real time. It's about streaming uh, streams, I guess, and handling data in a kind of a different paradigm where 
You know, you, you may have a huge data set that you eventually collect, but right now you only have the first uh, 100 megabytes of it. So do what you can now. Oh, and by the way, every second that comes by is another 30 kilobytes of data that you have to then assimilate, update, uh, incorporate into your model, and push out to production. Sure. So it's about how do you do this um, in, a, in a way that's kind of uh, robust, um, faithful to the mathematics, but also doable technically. Sure. And you guys do that with uh, Amazon, right? Or you, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We have okay. some really great uh, collaborations with Amazon that help us uh, be able to deliver for their customers sure. um, and um, also allow us to sort of uh, do trainings for them. Sure. That's always, that's why like people get so angry sometimes when, you know, the like once a year, once every couple of years, when like the Amazon web services goes down, like half the internet goes down and you can't watch Netflix yeah. or, you know, everybody's been there. We've all, but we also, I think relate it to like, you, you know, if your Netflix movie or TV show doesn't start up instantly, people get annoyed. So I think, you know, it's very, those are just real world cases that I think a lot of people have experienced. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, but Michael, we're we're at the end of the show again i really really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show but let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys yeah so um so if you want to learn more information about uh the data incubator we're at www.thedataincubator.com or you can just google the data incubator will be the first hit Perfect, man. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time in your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. You too, Kevin. Thanks very much. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. To join the free community, buy some merch, sponsor the show, or sign up for the newsletter, please visit the website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.